And throughout the day, he watched this guy who had a job of sweeping the sidewalk um, on the boardwalk right by the beach. So whenever a guest walked across the sand and across the sidewalk, um, he would just go back and forth, sweeping the same spot, the same little piece of sidewalk all day long. Uh, he just kept sweeping and sweeping. It was one of those, you know, worst jobs, you know, monotonous jobs. Uh, you let it go and it starts piling up with sand. It takes maintenance, maintenance to keep up with it. A lot of things in life are like that. They take maintenance to keep up with it. Housework, yard work, friendships, marriages, they require a constant maintenance to, to guard and uh, lest they spiral out of control and get out of hand. Well, one of those uh, things that needs maintenance in life is, for certain, the teaching or the message of the local church. What we proclaim, what we embrace, because lest we lose track and not guard it, it spirals out of control like these other things. It spirals off into tangents into uh, legalism in some cases, into entertainment in other cases, maybe into elitism or a number of other isms. It goes off track if we don't continually guard it. We might say a central truth here is that the church's message, it just needs careful guarding. We need to be all about that. And as I studied the passage this past week, uh, something started to dawn on me of one of the major cultural differences between where we live right now and, uh, and when this was written. Because in a lot of ways, people are always the same. We deal with a lot of the same problems, and the solutions are the same. But something that struck me as very, very different is how much access we have to information. So first century church, there's basically one church in town, and people are getting a, a message from that, that place. Well, here, you can listen to the best uh, preachers in the world online, you know, whenever you want. You could listen to them during this sermon if you were, you know, really sneaky about it. Um, you, as opposed to kind of a low literacy rate uh, back then, we have, you know, probably most of us in this room read. And I have a library in my office. I have somewhat of a library at home. I have a library on my phone. We just have access to so much. Um, any question we want answered, we can, uh, we can just ask Siri, and we at least get an opinion of some kind. Just information, information. We have so much. Um, so I thought, this changes the scene because while the church and the leadership and me as a pastor need to carefully guard what message comes out of here, each of you share the burden for what kind of messages you will embrace and put in your own head, what you will read, what uh, emails you'll forward, what, uh, what you'll watch, what you'll listen to, what podcasts, all these things. So you and I share the burden of what kind of message we place into our minds. And so when we talk about the teaching of the local church, um, I think a lot of times our minds directly go to uh, stylistic things. Like, oh, that was a good preacher. It was uh, really emotional. Or maybe it really wasn't emotional, so that was good. Or maybe it was really short or really long. Or maybe there's lots of background and lots of, you know, Greek talked about. Or maybe there was none. Or um, in some circles, there's this um, belief that the spirituality of a message is directly or improportional to uh, the slowness you go through the passage. And so one pastor, he preached a whole sermon on the word so, in for God so loved the world. Um, but it turns out in the Greek, the word's not even there. It's just, it just makes sense, the phrase, to translate it that way. So a whole sermon 
on something that wasn't there. As opposed to Jesus, one of his messages on the way to Emmaus, uh, he preached the whole Bible. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So you could take a little piece and be biblical, and you could take a rather large piece and be biblical as well. So if we're not talking about style, what are we talking about? When we gauge what do we ingest and what do we proclaim, what do we teach, there's got to be some kind of guidelines or principles, and that's exactly what uh, today's passage is going to talk about. So we just started uh, last week a series on the book of 1 Timothy, and uh, today we're going to be in verses 3 to 11. And uh, the whole theme of the book is doing church as God intended it. When, when God's uh, ecclesia, which is what that word kind of is up there, God's uh, assembly, his gathered people, his called out ones, his church, when we meet together, what is our message? What do we proclaim? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Five characteristics of the kind of teaching, the kind of messages that you and I should proclaim and that you and I should embrace. So it will be 1 Timothy chapter 1, 3, starting in verse 3. And if you're uh, less familiar, that's on page 991 of that Bible in the pew right in front of you. So five things, five characteristics. You're, you're gauging the messages that you embrace. First of all, number one, embrace teaching that is simply biblical rather than speculative. The passage starts out like this, uh, verse 3. As I urged you, and this is Paul talking to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remained at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So apparently Paul was going on to Macedonia, and he was encouraging or exhorting, giving Timothy the courage to stay in Ephesus. And uh, what was his first order of business? It was to stop the unhelpful teaching. Kind of first charge. Stop the teaching that was unorthodox, that was outside the boundaries of the message that had been delivered by the apostles. We might say outside the parameters of God's word. I like the cover of a, a recent uh, Christianity Today that's talking about the, the core doctrines of the church. And it says, I know you can't quite read that, but it, it says, um, define heresy. This time, think inside the box. You know, we're always thinking outside the box. It's like, well, some things you, you don't get creative with. You don't, you don't make stuff up. <laughs> you stick to what God has given us. So what uh, was their problem in, uh, in Ephesus? What was going on? What was the teaching that was needing to be corrected? Uh, we get a hint in, in uh, verse 4. It says, Nor those who devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. So rather than the central message that was given, they're, they're wandering off on these, these uh, rabbit trails into myths, fables, genealogies, family trees, uh, these, these sidetracks. Um, I'm not sure exactly what they were doing with that, but, but there's two major things going on in, in the early church in that time. 
that uh, this is probably related to. One is uh, the, we call them maybe Judaizers, people who were of Jewish descent, and they felt that to be a Christian, you had to become a Jew. You had to take on the cultural markers of Judaism in order to be um, in God's family. And so that was one group. And uh, another group of, um, that was really coming, rising up at this time was, uh, was Gnostic heresies, which is kind of a, a, a mystical dualism, um, similar to some of the, the New Age things that we have today. Maybe what was going on is kind of a combination of both of these. And here's kind of a, a heavy quote. The Judaizers here alluded to, while maintaining their perpetual obligation to the Mosaic law, they joined with it a theosophic ascetic tendency, pretending to see in it mysteries deeper than others can see. Well, translated, that means they're mixing this kind of mashup between the old uh, traditions and kind of a, a New Age mysticism pushing it together, and this was some of what was going on in the church. So the problem is, when we spiral off on all these trails, then it takes us away from the core biblical message. And there's been a tendency over the ages, over the ages, this just keeps on going on, sometimes real subtle, sometimes in big ways. In the last uh, couple of decades, there's been some really uh, big ones that became books and became movies. Uh, the Bible Code that became a film called The Omega Code, I believe. Um, this, this idea that there's, um, there's kind of secret messages encoded in the Hebrew text when, when letters are, uh, or characters are a certain space apart and they put these together and, and they apparently predict uh, things like real details about uh, the future and names we see in the newspaper now, for instance. Well, this is like a rabbit trail. People get all wrapped up into it, and they're looking for the secret message when there was like a, a regular message right there that they're missing. Um, also, uh, a little more recently, uh, the Da Vinci Code and the book or the movie that followed that as well. It's like rabbit trails, sidetrack. Have you ever been hiking and you follow a rabbit trail? You're on a trail, you think it's the trail, but then it's not a real trail, and all of a sudden, uh, what happens? You, you get lost. Yeah, uh, bad things happen when you go down rabbit trails. Uh, years ago, I was on a mission trip, and one of the guys on the trip with us, he was kind of a, he had a lot of biblical knowledge, and he was sort of an answer man. And, uh, and partway through the week um, in this ministry, some of the other students, they just kind of gather around him, and, and he would, you know, it was like his disciples there, and they'd hear his stories, and he'd tell, but a lot of it was kind of speculative. He talked real certain about things that are, are maybe not real, real certain. And, uh, but they would, the other students would just kind of eat this up. Um, later, this guy really struggled in his faith. It's like when you, when you spend your time all down these trails, you get lost. You get lost along the way. Where I see this played out a lot is when we take certain astrological events or political events and we, uh, we kind of put too much weight into them and predicting some things that are you know, details about Christ's return. Well, some of us will be ready for his return, and some of us won't. But I'm pretty sure we're all going to be surprised when it happens. Um, no one knows the day or the hour of his return. So, these are just examples. Sidetrack. So, when you lead a Bible study, when you listen to a podcast, when you pick up a book or read a blog, or you forward emails, don't get derailed by the speculative rabbit trails. 
come back to the message of God's Word. Because what happens when we get on these rabbit trails? It damages our faith. And that's the second reason he gives right here, or the second characteristic. Number two, embrace teaching that results in building up the faith rather than tearing it down. Here's the end of verse 4. It says uh, about these myths and genealogies. They promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. These speculations, you, you could translate that questions, controversies, debate. It's like um, a message that raises more questions than it does provide answers. That word stewardship, it's like a, a house manager or administration. Uh, I think it's like God entrusts us with a serious responsibility of building up the faith of other people. Um, it, it's kind of a complicated phrase there, and, I, and I've put it in a couple other translations that gives us maybe a fuller picture. The message, which is obviously a paraphrase, says, apparently some people have been introducing fantasy stories and fanciful family trees that digress into silliness. Instead of pulling the people back into the center, deepening faith and obedience. Or in the New Living Translation, it says, these things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a life of faith in God. And that's what we want to do is help one another live a life in faith in God. Build up our faith. We gravitate to this speculative stuff like junk food sometimes. Um, Caleb, my son, he tells me one day years ago that he doesn't like donuts. And uh, he sticks to that story. And I'm like, you know, what's wrong with you, kid? You know, a donut is tasty. Like, well, it, it makes my stomach hurt. I'm like, well, all it is is, you know, sugar fried in fat. Of course it makes your stomach hurt. It makes all of our stomachs hurt. But, uh, but it's very insightful to realize, wait, no, that's not good for me. I should stop. But uh, some of this, this kind of teaching that's so, oh, it's so intriguing. It's so interesting. It's a rabbit trail. It's like, ooh, it gives me kind of a, a buzz. It gets me kind of spun up. Um, it's like donuts. It's junk food for the soul. Man, I also got hungry when I started talking about that. Okay, I'm, I'm back now. I should back up a slide so I don't uh, continue on that. <coughs> so I was talking with this family a while back. They had several kids that went off to different, um, different universities. And, and one of their kids went to uh, a Christian university that a lot of you probably would recognize the name of that school. Um, but her experience there was that they deconstructed students' faith. Like a lot of the kids would come in with kind of a, a shaky faith. You know, they just kind of sort of inherited uh, religiousness from their parents, and they wind up at a Christian college. And, and in the Bible classes at this school, they were kind of tearing apart that shaky faith. But they weren't building it back up with anything. And so the result is that students would go away to a Christian college and come out of that experience with a with more confused, uh, weaker faith in Christ. That is not the teaching that we're promoting. That is not the message. That's, that is a tear-down faith, not a build-up faith message. Jesus accused the Pharisees of a tearing-down uh, message. They were tearing down people's faith. And the re real problem was because their hearts were not pure 
and their motives were not right. And so that's what we see, a third characteristic of the kind of teaching that Christians should embrace is teaching that results, teach, sorry, teaching that springs from a pure heart rather than from a distracted heart, we might say. And this is in verses 5 and 6. Look with me at verse 5. It says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, certain persons, by swerving from these, they've wandered away into vain discussion. Or in the King James, vain jangling, which I just love that phrase so much I couldn't uh, resist titling the sermon, vain jangling. So the ultimate goal, the, the aim of the charge is what? It's love. That's, that's the reason that we, we preach. That's the reason uh, we have a message is because we want to love people. <laughs> the, the aim, goal, the final result is, is love. So when we uh, receive a message, whether it comes from a pulpit or from a podcast or from an email or from a book, uh, we can't always tell motives. But sometimes we can guess. Sometimes it's, it becomes obvious. Uh, is this uh, teaching just trying to get people riled up? Are they trying to sell books? Are they trying to impress? Are they trying to sway political affiliation? Are they trying to strive for some kind of personal gain? Or is this person just trying to love you with the truth of God's word? Sometimes we can't tell. Sometimes it's really obvious. Well, Jesus had kind of this back and forth with uh, some of the major camps of his day, um, Pharisees and Sadducees. In uh, Matthew 22, we see kind of a multi-round uh, round dialogue, and it goes kind of like this. Oops. Okay, round one, Pharisees versus Jesus. They come with this question about taxes. So uh, we think taxing is bad right now. Does anybody think taxing is bad? Okay, some people think taxing is bad um, or too much or whatever. Well, this is way, 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 way worse than anything that uh, we experience here. There's like multi-layers of, of um, weird uh, systems of oppressive collection of money from people. Um, a tax collector was more like a mob boss, and then there was like a, a religious element to it, and then then in Israel was under Rome, and so it's like it just keeps going. So, you know, the basic, you know, working guy, he, you know, he could barely, barely make it. Okay, so taxes was a real hot topic. You know, if you really wanted to uh, stir up a, a fight, you talk about taxes. And so they come to Jesus and they say, uh, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, thinking they kind of have him. Well, what does Jesus do with that? In verse 18, it says, But Jesus, being aware of their malice, he saw right off the bat that their hearts weren't right in asking the question. And he gives them this brilliant answer by, okay, whose face is on the coin? It's Caesar. Well, then give it to Caesar. And uh, they're like, man, why did we ask that question? Um, he got at their heart. Well, then round two is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, among other things, didn't believe in, in a resurrection. You know, those who are who are followers of God, 
They didn't think that they would, there would be like an afterlife, uh, a resurrecting of their body. And so they would come up with these, these wild scenarios to try to say that the resurrection is ridiculous. And the one they brought here is, okay, say a woman is married to a guy, one of seven brothers, and he dies. And so then he, she marries the brother, which is um, tradition, and he dies. And then he mar- she marries brother number three, and he dies. And then she marries brother number four, and he dies. And then she marries brother number five, and he dies. And then she marries brother number six, and he dies. And then she marries brother number seven, and he dies. And I'm thinking, somebody should check on this lady. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> something seems really uh, fishy going on here. But, uh, but the point of it, they said, so in heaven, so to speak, who's she married to? Like, oh, we got him now. Because she can't be married to all these, all these brothers in heaven. And uh, Jesus brings it back and he says, he brings it back to God's character, back to the center. And he says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Again, they want to go on rabbit trails and he's like, shh, this is what God's like. Well, Pharisees, uh, another round. They come with this question. Which is the greatest commandment? Because there's a whole lot of commandments, and apparently this was something that was debated, you know, which is outranks, you know, the others and whatever. Um, you know, it's just so fun to debate these kinds of things. And uh, Jesus drove right to the core, and he says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. All the other commandments just hinge on these things. This is the heart of the matter is to love. The primary command is to love. And again, they're like, why did we ask that question? And so uh, after they were worn out from the asking, it, it turns in verse 41 where Jesus asks a question. And it says this in verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And his question is this. What do you think about the Christ? What, what do you think about the Christ? So rabbit trail, rabbit trail, getting sidetracked, speculation, which is the greatest? And he's like, what do, you, what do you think about the Christ? What are you going to do with me? <laughs> and it brings it back, back to the center. So really he was challenging their, their motives, um, their heart. They, they were filled with malice when they asked these questions and engaged in these conversations. This might be a stretch, but sometimes when I'm in a, a setting, like for instance at a restaurant and a waiter or waitress is being like just extra kind, extra nice. Uh, these skeptical thoughts get in my head. It's like, are they just a really nice person? Are they just working really hard? Or are they just trying to work me for a tip? Um, and uh, maybe I shouldn't jump to that, but uh, sometimes I do. And I think when we hear a message, we read a book, we pass on an email, we need to ask that question. What, what's the motive? What are, they, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to get me riled up? Are they trying to sway me? Or are they trying to love me with the bare truth of God's word? If it's not the pure motives, just let it, let it fly by. Embrace teaching that is pure-hearted. So what's the opposite of pure-hearted teaching? I think it's teaching that, uh, that wants to control rather than love. So we need to embrace teaching that's driven by this desire to love rather than a desire to control other people. 
So notice in verse 7 and 8, it says this. He's talking about the, the teachers that were the problem. It says, They are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So these guys, whatever their other problems were, they really love to be law teachers. That's what they wanted to be. And it looks like they are wielding the law like a club to conform other people to their image. So if if we're talking about Judaizers here, they're like, well, we think Christianity should look like this and everybody should do these things to be part of, you know, our thing. And so they'd wield that law like a club to conform. This was the big issue in the, in the early church. And in, in Acts 15, we're given a glimpse of how they, how they solve this. Um, if this couple verses, this is kind of the beginning and the end of the discussion. In verse 1, it says, uh, as Acts 15, 1, Some men came down to Ju- from Judea and were teaching the brothers that Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So the Judaizers, you know, unless you follow through all the Mosaic law, you can't uh, be in God's family. And so they discussed this, and the church together concluded, uh, verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In other words, uh, no, that's not necessary. We're all saved by grace just the same way. And, uh, and they really concluded that. They, uh, and it's really a great glimpse into how the church um, uh, went about those complicated things. So these guys were trying to, to uh, conform other people to their image by using the law in the wrong way. They didn't even really know what the law was for because the law uh, is not for the just, it says. It's not for the righteous. Uh, Look at verses 9 and 10. It says this, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, all kinds of things are on this list. And so what the law does is, uh, is it confronts you and makes you say, Oh my goodness, I made it on this list. I'm a liar. <laughs> um, I fudged on this thing, whatever it is, and it makes you realize you really need a Savior. But the law itself doesn't make you righteous. And so they were wielding it like a club when what it's supposed to do is push us toward our Savior, the one who has a solution for the problem. Instead of like this, this is a Lego Stormtrooper clone army. Uh, so if you've watched any of the Star Wars movies, in one, they make a clone army where they're all identical and they're all completely uh, compliant. And uh, the Judaizers wanted to make a clone army church, you know, where everyone's the same and they're all compliant. They all look the same and act the same. But instead, we want to drive people back to God's word and God's Spirit, and give God's Word and God's Spirit the freedom to have its way in, in our hearts and lives. In the history of uh, Christian missions, there's been kind of some, some sad mistakes of clumping together a uh, cultural 
uh, Westernism with the, the gospel message. So you see people come to the Lord, then all of a sudden they, they look and dress and act uh, just like we do here. Rather than um, missionaries recently, like, like Nancy here and the Clarks a few weeks ago, they come wearing the clothes from, uh, from the Philippines and from, from Bangladesh. They've, they've just uh, adapted to the culture um, rather than taking our culture and kind of cramming it in there. So that's, kind of a, that's one way this can play out is we, t- we get confused about what's the real message and what's kind of the culture that goes along with it. Years ago, I was in Albania, and I visited a church, and it was like exactly like going to church right here. People dress the same. The whole flow of service, you could just predict it. It's just like this. All the songs are the songs we sing here, except they're in Albanian. I'm like, is, is anybody writing Albanian worship songs? <laughs> because there's Christians here. You should write some songs. Because um, they just took it and plopped down here. Anyway, I probably shouldn't say much more about this. All of these things boil down to uh, this last piece here. What kind of teaching should Christians embrace? Embrace teaching that is healing rather than teaching that is toxic. Uh, The end of verse 10, you know, what kinds of things to reject. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Well, that word sound also means... uh, like healthy or, or well, it's, it's wholesome. It's, it's teaching that's good for you. Um, sound doctrine could be healthy teaching. Flee the toxic teaching, embrace the healthy teaching. So what does healthy teaching look like? Our final verse, verse 11, says this. It's teaching in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Healthy teaching concerns the good news of the gloriousness of our blessed God. The gospel, it literally means good news. It's wonderful news. It's not bad news. And it's about a glorious, brilliant, magnificent, splendid God, not a ferocious, dull, nitpicky God. And it's, it's a message that is about a blessed God. You know, for the most part, blessed uh, just means happy. Um, but uh, sometimes in Christian circles, we're not sure Christians should be happy, and so we try to use blessed instead of happy. Like the Beatitudes, you know, that's talking about, you know, that's that generally good feeling you have when you're, you're blessed. It's not like, oh, I feel so terrible, but, you know, somehow that's blessed. Um, it's a really goodness. Well, well here it maybe even has... Um, a bit of this Greek uh, God ideas of where the, the gods are, they're kind of above human problems. They're just like in this blissful, it's just transcendent, pleasant life. Well, God is transcendent and he is just in this state of total pleasantness. <laughs> He's not up there shaking his hands or wringing his hands or shaking his fists. It's like he's, he's a glorious God who's, at ease with this, uh, this world. He's, he's not near okay with some of the things that go on here, but he's not in a panic. He's, he's a happy God. <laughs> he is, this is good news about the gloriousness of the blessed God. Well, there's some speculation about uh, 
Rome, Roman Empire. Partly what contributed to that was, uh, was um, kind of the aristocracy going crazy from lead poisoning. Uh, people have, have challenged that, but, but there's this theory because uh, even aqueducts were lined with lead and cooking things and pottery, and so all, all that lead intake, um, it, really, it really messes with you. And uh, so they thought they were living the good life, but they were slowly, you know, killing themselves with the lead poisoning. Well, there's messages about God that we tend to embrace that are killing us. Um, recently, uh, my wife read this book, and we were talking about it, The Good and Beautiful God. Well, see, this good and beautiful God, that describes what we were talking about right there, the good news about the gloriousness of our blessed God. He's a good and beautiful God. And the author talks about different uh, false narratives or stories we tell ourselves. You know, God just wants me to try harder. Or God blesses me when I'm good and punishes me when I'm bad. Or God's angry with me. And these things kind of shape our lives. These are not the good news about the gloriousness of our blessed God. And as long as we're slowly taking in that lead poisoning, it's like, oh, that's still, I'm just living the good life, drinking that up. It's, uh, it's killing us. We need to reject the toxic messages and embrace the truth about our good and beautiful God. Okay, all together, what should uh, Christians embrace? What kind of teaching should we, should we uh, expect here from the pulpit? Should we teach in our classes? Should we teach to our kids? Should we read? Should we listen to teaching that is simply biblical rather than speculative? Results in building up our faith rather than shaking it and tearing it down. Teaching that springs from a pure heart rather than a distracted heart. Teaching that's driven by this desire to love rather than control. You know, we teach so we could love, not the other way around. We're not just nice to people so we can tell them our message. Our message is the best way to love people. And finally, teaching that is healing rather than teaching that is toxic. So if I could just give you one challenge, and that is, in all of your world, replace the other voices with the life-giving word of God. Healthy, not toxic teaching. Um, And like I said in the beginning, those things just creep in. The leaves keep falling. The twigs and sticks and berries keep falling. And we need to keep coming back and maintaining the garden of our heart and the garden of our our mind and uh, coming back to the center of God's pure word. So uh, let me pray for us along those lines. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful more than ever, for your word and how it's so pure and holy and healing and it's all we need.